Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey guys, just a quick reminder here at the top of the show, the Other People with Brad Listy podcast has its own official app. It's the Other People with Brad Listy app. Go get it. It's free. It's available wherever you get your apps. It's the most elegant way to listen to this program. New episodes automatically upload to the app. You can download episodes to listen to while you're offline. You can favorite your favorite episodes. Again, you get the most recent 50 episodes for free. And if you want to get at the full archives, if you want access to everything, more than 400 episodes and counting, including conversations with authors like George Saunders, Cheryl Strayed, Hilton Niles, Roxanne Gay, Tao Lin, David Shields, Sheila Hetty, Susan Orlean, Amy Bender, the list goes on. You just sign up for Other People Premium. It's a subscription. It costs 75 cents a month. 75 cents a month gets you access to everything, more than 400 episodes, available at your fingertips anywhere you go. The Other People with Brad Listy app, it's free. Other People Premium, it's almost free. It's a great way to support the show. Go do that if you are so inclined. All right, let's get started. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listing. Just one person, oh, just one Everybody, here we go again. This is it. This <laughs> right. is other people. This is you and me and another person. This is made in a sweltering garage. How's it going out there? What's happening? I'm Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles, California. It's very good to be with you. I'm very excited about today's program. My guest is Viet Thanh Nguyen. His novel, The Sympathizer, uh, received the uh, Pulitzer Prize for Fiction this year. It also happens to be his debut novel. So not a, not a bad debut. Uh, I should mention that I read The Sympathizer earlier this year when I was judging uh, the Tournament of Books. I was asked to be a judge in the Tournament of Books over at the Morning News, and uh, I had to judge The Sympathizer against uh, a book called Oreo, a novel called Oreo. And I'm very pleased to report uh, that while both uh, were fine books, I picked The Sympathizer as a winner and advanced it to the next round. This was before it won the Pulitzer. And now that it has, uh, you know, now that it has received the Pulitzer Prize, I'm feeling very good about my choice in retrospect. I feel like I chose wisely, uh, not to mention I avoided an awkward situation where I would be uh, interviewing Viet after knocking him out of the tournament. That could have been awkward. In fact, I'm not even sure if this episode would have happened had I done that. 
So uh, it all worked out. That's what I'm saying. Uh, this episode is uh, brought to you by LitBreaker. LitBreaker is an online advertising network for book people. If you want to reach book people on the internet, go to litbreaker.com and learn how you can advertise on a bunch of great book-related literary sites. Litbreaker.com. Can you hear the fatigue in my voice? Can you hear the uh, weariness? Can you feel the heat? <laughs> the incredible desert heat in this garage right now? Can you feel it? Uh, you know, couple that with the fact that we've moved. And I'm experiencing a unique level of full body exhaustion. The good news is we're in the new house. We made it. We're, or we almost made it. Not everything has moved yet. There's still work to be done. But for the most part, we're in. We're living there. We got that accomplished. But, uh, you know, if you, you, you forget how exhausting moving is. I think you have to block it out. Otherwise, you would never do it again. You know, the boxes, the running around, the unpacking, the bags of trash, the not knowing where things are, the accidentally throwing things away, the endless uh, customer service calls. Endless. Multiple trips to the store, the hardware store. It's just, uh, it's a process. And hopefully it's the last time I have to go through it for a long time. That said, uh, I'm going to be recording in this garage, the old garage, for the next couple of weeks. I'm still on the lease here, so I'm using the garage until the very last moment. Because in the new house, i got to figure out how it's all going to work. It's not clear yet. <laughs> so there's a, we're in a state of flux here at the Other People Podcast. I think I mentioned uh, in, a, in, a, you know, in a previous episode... The show is at a logistical crossroads. Got to figure out where to record. I was thinking about maybe even trying to broker a deal with some sort of bookstore or, I don't know, a bar, <laughs> a pub. We'll see. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer or if you just love literature I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. My guest is Viet Thanh Nguyen. His novel, The Sympathizer, is available now from Grove Press. It is the recipient of the 2016 Pulitzer Prize for Fiction. Here he is, folks. This is Viet Thanh Nguyen. I was in a hotel room in Cambridge, Massachusetts on a book tour, 3 p.m. in the afternoon, and I was doing what I do on book tour, which is write emails. Yeah. And all of a sudden, the Twitter feed starts to go beep, 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 and Facebook does the same thing. And I look at it, and I'm like, no. I actually literally start to shake. 
But before I can start celebrating, I have to make sure it actually happened. So I wait until my publicist calls me a couple minutes later and I say, is this really happening? <laughs> they looked on the website of the Pulitzer and said, that's what it says. My God. Yeah. So how, did, how has this changed your life? Has it changed your life? It's pretty radically changed my life. Um, the past eight weeks have been crazily busy. I cannot respond to my emails. We cannot respond enough to the invitations that are flooding in. Just got one today to go speak at World Refugee Day in New York City, along with some unknown high-profile Goodwill ambassador from UNHCR, which I hope is Angelina Jolie. Right. So stuff like that, you know, could not, not have imagined that two months Do ago. Do you say yes to most things? No, at this point. I used to say yes to everything because I'm the guy who said yes to everything. And now it's physically, emotionally impossible. Okay. So do you have help uh, deliberating or is it mostly left to you? It's mostly left to my wife. Okay. I go and I say, can I do this? She says, <laughs> is it going to impede our relationship and your fatherhood duties? <laughs> right. Is it worth the money? You're not, so, going to, yeah. you're not going to New York to hang out with Angelina Jolie. Right. <laughs> well, I actually ran that buyer and she thought, yes, even though I'm not being paid, it's like, this is an important thing yes. to speak with the, U, uh, with the UN and on refugees. I'm a refugee. So we're, we're saying yes. Absolutely. That's like, that's a, uh, that's a really nice invitation to get. Mm -hmm. um, so what else? Like book sales are probably doing better than they were. Yeah, book sales are doing better. I mean, the book sales were doing well for a novel of this kind, which is literary and not a feel-good novel, as I keep being reminded by various readers. But funny. But funny, if you can get past the premise, you know. Um, so, yeah, book sales are doing pretty well. Uh, but, of course, they, they went up drastically with the Pulitzer. And, they're you know, it's a, it's a numbers game. So there have actually been articles gauging how the book sales have done for the Pulitzer winners, not just mine, but other books, percentage-wise, sock copies. So it's been a big boon That's for my awesome. publisher and for me, obviously. Yeah. Do you have, like, are you working on another book, or do you get, like, a, now do you get a new book deal on the on the heels of this, or is it all? Well, give credit to my publisher. They actually offered me a two-book deal before the Pulitzer um, for a short story collection I'd written before The Sympathizer and for the sequel to The Sympathizer. Um, so the There's the a sequel. There's a sequel. Oh, um, the short story collection is coming out in February because I already wrote it. Okay, and the sequel, fifty pages. I, I wrote fifty pages already, and there's like a twenty-five page outline, so they the publisher knows what they're getting. Okay, so the and the publisher bought all of that. Yeah, before you won the Pulitzer, right? Smart move by the publisher. Well, they were also very nice and kicked up, you know, raised the advance yes. after the Pulitzer too, without oh, us asking. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. That's the kind of thing that happens when you win a Pulitzer, I guess. You would hope without asking. <laughs> Uh, well, that's just awesome. And, and and how contemporary is it to find out on Twitter about I don't your? No, I mean, we, with the Pulitzer people in the literary world, we're not dealing with the most uh, media savvy people necessarily. Like, I finally watched the Pulitzer announcement, for example, on YouTube, uh, and it was like the most boring thing ever. <laughs> so people, I mean, it's being tweeted, but whenever the, the the guy who does the announcement, he just drones them off, and then no one in the room says anything or cheers. So it's all taking place somewhere else, these reactions. And I know that my publisher heard about it because their, their people were watching this live, I guess, on whatever people watch live now. Did you, you, know. did you know you were nominated? Is that No. It's all a secret. It's all a secret. Right. Okay. Which I think is fabulous because I've been, I know I've been nominated for other awards and they just make you sweat it out. You yeah. know, long yeah. list, short list, award ceremony. It's pretty awful. Yeah. Well, that's, that's unbelievable. And like, it's probably, is it something you ever dreamt of like happening? Was it something you had thought about ever? Well, I think in the same way that somebody grows up, you know, who plays baseball thinks, I want to win the World Series. You know, so you think about it in that way, but it's like a fantasy versus I'm sure I'm going to win it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I guess any writer who sits down to do this probably like it in some vague way crosses your mind. Mm -hmm. That seems like the honest answer. Right. Although I just read some article summarizing the bio, the uh, memoir of 
Salman Rushdie's ex-wife, whose name I can't remember, but the beautiful model. Uh, Padma okay, Lakshmi. Padma Lakshmi. And, you know, she, according to her, she says, you know, Salman would just, every, t- every time the Nobel Prize news came out and he didn't get it, he'd be thrown into mourning. Oh my I don't God. want to have that kind of attitude. Well, that, but like, this is the thing about it, though. Like, on the one hand, I sort of recoil, but on the other hand, I'm like, wow, just to just to have that much, like, to hold your work in that high of regard. Yeah. There's a part of me that envies it because I think like I'm reflexively so self-deprecating and like, oh no, you know. But he's like, yeah, I, what I've done <laughs> is worthy of the Nobel. <laughs> well, I think I think realistically, he can probably say I'm in the top couple hundred people who might be in the running for this, right? Yeah. You know, yeah. but to be thrown into mourning or whatever, you know, regret because you didn't get it, that's a little bit excessive. Yeah. I mean, do you have that kind of ambition? Like Nobel? Now that you've won the Pulitzer, you're like, or the Pulitzer, you're like, why not? No, I don't have that kind of ambition. <laughs> and if I did, I'd keep it to myself. <laughs> that's a very diplomatic answer. Um, so let's talk about the sympathizer. Mm-hmm. And let's talk about, well, actually, I think it, the two things are tied together. Uh, you mentioned earlier that you're a refugee. And I think that the Vietnam War, um, you know, obviously had a lot to do with that. And was probably the impetus for, or at least uh, some parts of the book, correct? I mean, like, so why don't we start there? Well, absolutely. I mean, I've been shaped by history, and I grew up at a very young age knowing that there was that history and not fully understanding it, but beginning by intuitively before I was 10, explicitly by the time I was 10, and uh, absorbing this kind of information uh, through family stories, family experiences, and then starting to watch American uh, movies and reading American books and reading American histories, American magazines. Um, and so I knew that I was a refugee from this war, and it's something that it's important to insist on today because I think there's a tendency on the American readership to talk about this novel as an immigrant novel because that's just the that's a part of the American dream and American culture. We think of immigrants, but there's a real important distinction between immigrants and refugees yeah. that I have to draw on. And, you know, one of the, one of the important distinctions is because a lot of refugees are here because of war. A lot of immigrants are here because of war too. But again, that's another thing that Americans tend to forget. Yeah. Well, and how did you have like a visceral memory of, of being told that? Like, do you remember when somebody told you that this is what happened? I'm trying to remember if there was a, a singular incident, you know, but the 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 one that I obviously you know have talked about and remember is watching Apocalypse Now when I was ten years old, and and that that's early to watch Apocalypse Now. I guess I was precocious, <laughs> you know, but there was this newfangled invention called the VCR, and we got one relatively early on, probably around nineteen eighty nineteen eighty or so, and and I'd seen you know what was available. There wasn't that much available. You go to the video store and it was like on a couple of shelves with the videotapes that were there. So after watching Star Wars a dozen times, got to Apocalypse Now, which is actually sort of a related film. And um, that was, I think, my first narrative exposure to the Vietnam War outside of the fragments of memory that were circulating in the family and the, and the Vietnamese refugee community. Um, and that was a narrative that I realized that I was both excited by as a spectator, as an American spectator, an American boy watching a war film, but also a narrative that um, shut me out, you know, that a narrative in which people like me existed only to be killed or spoken for, uh, to be mourned. And that I knew that that was not enough. And, and eventually by 20, I knew that I'd have to do something about that. Well, the, and you parody Apocalypse Now or like films like it. It seems like an Apocalypse Now parody in the book. Pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, but as you say, many other films as well. Yeah. I mean, like I think of Oliver Stone. I mean, there's the popular, uh, like, you know, quote unquote, mainstream Vietnam war films um, of my youth and of the past several decades. Uh, are there any of them that you like? Actually, I like Apocalypse Now. I, I mean, I like a Platoon. I like Full Metal Jacket. Um, a number of these films are really good. 
artistically. I, re- I respect them technically, and I respect them if I were to shut off the part of my brain that is the Vietnamese part that says, wait a minute, what mm. happened to the Vietnamese people? But I can't. So then, of course, I have to be critical of them for that reason. And I have to feel that you know the novel itself is meant to engage with these works of art. And as, as, I, as I think... All works of art should, you know, we as writers, we should be responding to things that come before and, and we should both respect them and also, you know, point out where they fail. And I think that's one of the jobs that the sympathizer does. Yeah, no, I know it does. And and I think that um, you see this so often where it's like a film like Dances with Wolves, where there's a white protagonist in a Native American world, or you have the white person in Africa, or you ha- it's always the white perspective and it's white people making these films, which is no accident. Uh, Absolutely. I mean, obviously it still happens today on TV shows and remakes, all this kind of stuff. And so it's an enduring part of Hollywood as an industry. But although, you know, Hollywood is a very unique kind of thing and it's easily mocked and satirized, I think it's it also needs to be taken seriously. I mean, I think it's it's the, what it does in terms of erasing and effacing people of color from their own stories um, and making them marginal is, in, for me, indicative of a central aspect of American culture and psychology. So it's not too far-fetched to think that Hollywood does these things in the same way that America in general does it when it goes overseas and does its foreign policy yeah. and doesn't ask questions, for example. And so, you know, the, the although it's a comic part of the novel, the satirization of the film and of Hollywood, it's also pretty serious because I make claims like Hollywood is, you know, our unofficial ministry of propaganda. We don't need an official one like the Soviets or the Chinese or the Nazis because American ideology is such that we don't need to force Hollywood to do these things. Hollywood willingly participates in, in American culture and American power. Well, and it, like from a creative artistic perspective, like, you know, you say you admire a film like Apocalypse Now from an artistic perspective, a technical perspective, as a, as a work of cinematic art. Um, you, can in, you can see the, the appeal, correct? Yes. Uh, but at the same time, there's this deficit and uh, this sort of uh, like papering over of the people of color and their experience. As a white auteur who is culturally sensitive... You know, let's say there's a director who's aware of this and would like to try to make a balanced film where there's, you know, uh, multiple viewpoints represented. I think sometimes, uh, like, the the criticism could be, well, what right do you have to speak on behalf of these people? Like, that's not your experience. You see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Like, there could be an overstepping, whereas you can speak to the Vietnamese experience and the refugee experience Mm -hmm. with, like, authority. Like, do you think it's uh, okay? Do you think that, like, uh, people of different races um, or cultural backgrounds should make a greater effort to extend themselves and to try to give voice to those things? Do you think they lack a certain authority? Like, I feel like I could see that being something that holds them back. Yeah, and obviously that's an important question. It goes to these issues of authenticity, who has the right to speak, and so on. I don't take a blanket position on it. I don't say that if you're white, you can't make work about some other culture, and vice versa, right? Yeah. I want to reserve the right to write my great urban novel about divorce in a New England town, if I ever <laughs> want to get to, to doing that. You know, but, Achiever uh, novel. Right, but I mean, I'll do my research. You yeah. know? And, but, but partially, you know, one of the things I say in the novel is, if you're a person of color in American society, you've already done your research by living here, you know, yeah, like the, yeah. by being exposed constantly to what white people think about themselves. Right. So it's not that, let's say Hollywood, it's not that Hollywood can't do these kinds of things, but it's that Hollywood has often done them so badly that you wonder, have they done their research? And have they actually 
addressed the way that they make movies so that they could try to at least get a little bit closer to, I don't know if authentic is the right word, but how about a better representation? Like hire screenwriters, you know, hire actors, put them on, make at least make one of the stars a person of color from the culture you're talking about. So there's between not doing something and exploiting something, there's this whole range of things in between that we often don't do. Right. Well, yeah. And I think it's like, there was the whole thing last year with the Oscars, like Oscar so white or whatever the hashtag was. And, uh, it just struck me that like the it's a systemic thing. It is systemic, and and that's why you know it's it, it's it's important not to think about um, a work of art, whether it's literature or film, in these examples, simply as the work of art itself. Like you know, we buy a book or we watch a movie, and it's the, only the end product that matters. But it's the entire um, production chain, it's the entire industry, whether it's the literary industry or the cinematic industry that we need to pay attention to. And so there's other discussions have been happening in the last year or two about how the literary industry is 89% white. Um, And I assume primarily upper class, upper middle class people, that inevitably is going to affect the books that we get at the end, right? So we can't only talk about the books, we need to talk about the entire industry, how they reflect, how they, how they express inequalities that are deeply embedded in American society. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, do you have any ideas on what the solution is? I mean, like these big corporate publishers need to have imprints that are devoted to writers of color. They need to reallocate resources. Well, I would say communism (laughs) (laughs) has some clues that, you know, I mean, seriously, I mean, like we need actually to talk about systemic inequality throughout American society and how it impacts everything. So on the one hand, while we can say, yes, a particular industry needs to have pay its interns, needs to have affirmative action, these are just Band-Aid measures that can't really stem the flow of blood from a society that's that's weakened by inequality. So vote Bernie Sanders, vote whatever you think today. It's June 7th. It's the California primary. Right. Too late for your, uh, your audience, perhaps. But, you know, there are, I mean, we really need to think about art and its location to society as a whole and that we can't change art without changing society. So uh, let's go back to you arriving in America. You were born in Vietnam. Yes. Where in Vietnam? I was born in a little town called Ban Mathuat, which is in the Central Highlands, and it's famous for coffee. So if you buy Uban today, it probably has beans from this area, um, and famous for being the first town overrun in the final invasion of 1975. In our case, the town was taken in March, and that was about a month or six weeks before the final end of the country, of the South Vietnam. And then when did your family decide that it was time to to flee? Well, my dad was in Saigon on business when the town was taken, Um, so the lines of communication were cut off. So my mom had to make that decision, and her decision was, okay, we're going to run right now, and not knowing where my dad is. And uh, not knowing what the future held, thinking that this would just be another seesaw battle as it had been in the past and that we would return home, she left my oldest sister, who was adopted behind to take care of the family business and house, took my older brother and myself, and we walked downhill a few hundred kilometers um, through a battle, uh, battle-torn uh, landscape. A few hundred kilometers. I think. My geography is bad, but it was long. I mean, I've driven that route uphill. It, it, it was days, not hours. I'm pretty sure it was days. By by, by by car up the mountains, it was half a day of, of driving. So by foot through that war, yeah. it took a lot longer. And we made it to Nyajang, which is the nearest port city, um, and took a, a, bo- a boat to Saigon. Fortunately, found my dad. And then there was yet another you know, terrible story to get out of Saigon as well. 
God. And what, what about your uh, older sister and the family business? Like, did she get, get out too? No, she was 16. And the communists, when they took over, of course, took everything away and made her volunteer. That was a term for a youth brigade whose job was to go and re- help rebuild the country. You know, and then she came back and she was she found a husband, raised kids and everything. And I um, went to see her. I met her in Yajang uh, in 2003. So that is about 28 years after I left. And, you know, the great joy of that was to find out that, you know, even though she had endured all these kinds, kinds of things and even though she was nowhere near as prosperous as my family had become, she was a person who, unlike everybody else in my family, knew how to have fun. <laughs> she looked good. She wore makeup. She was fashionable. And so that was actually, you know, one of the ironic outcomes of that history. And where does she live now? Same town? Or? Same town. Oh, wow. You know, which I've never been back to. But you're, like, when, when you guys parted ways, that was the last time you saw her until, until 2003? Yep. Wow. But, you know, my parents, my dad didn't see his relatives for 40 years. My mom didn't see her relatives for 20 years. And these stories of separation are really actually quite normal. That's what I was going to say. Like, this is the refugee experience. Fam- yeah. Families get torn apart. It's just commonplace. Yeah. Everybody I know has stories like this. <sighs> and like most people who, uh, you know, have no real contact with this sort of uh, reality that seems unfathomable. That's why I don't generally go around talking about it you know, at a cocktail party. You talk about it, people are like, oh, well, I don't, oh, sorry, you know. So it, it is unfathomable, I think. Again, I think for many Americans, what's fathomable is the when they think of this particular war, they obviously have some sense of what American soldiers have been through. And so even as difficult as it is for a lot of American soldiers to talk about their experience to civilians, at least – the gist of their experience has been turned into movies and books and so on. But for most Americans, I think they have no understanding, recognition of uh, what happened to Vietnamese people of all kinds, but including the ones who made it to the United States. Until they read The Sympathizer. Well, let's hope. Yeah. And, you know, it's funny, uh, Just uh, we're talking just a few days after Muhammad Ali died, and I've been seeing endless things about him on the internet and TV and reading in the, in the paper, and uh, his his stance on the Vietnam war back in the day, uh, really aged, it's aged well, I it feel, has. you know, he's, I mean, a, yeah. he's a really special guy. And like the, some of the quotes from him, I don't know. I don't know everything about it, but I just found myself moved by the things he was saying back then, which yeah. made him very unpopular with a lot of people. I think it was six, 1965 when he refused to draft. Was that, was it 67? I can't remember the exact, very fairly early on. So if it was 67, this was, you know, before 1968, the Tet Offensive, when things really went south for, uh, the American public opinion, which actually supported the war before 1968. So his his stance to refuse to be drafted was extremely unpopular. It's of the same decision that made Martin Luther King Jr. in 1967 deliver a speech about Vietnam saying we shouldn't be there and connecting the experience that, you know, poor people of color, black and Latino men in particular, you know, are suffering here in the United States, and yet they're being drafted and sent to fight this war that's, that, in, in King's opinion and, and Muhammad Ali's opinion, was racist against Vietnamese and other Asian people. So they were uh, really at the forefront of radical black consciousness. And you have to understand that there were a lot of African Americans, besides other Americans, who didn't support this position. They said, you know, we should focus on civil rights domestically in the U.S. And Muhammad Ali and Martin Luther King Jr. were saying, no, we need to be International. It was globalized. It was globalized, right? Mm. And the the only the good thing about this uh, is, you know, about Muhammad Ali, he stood up for what was right, and he was validated, which should be a, a you know a clarion call for all of us. Yeah. To heed, you know, our genuine 
beliefs that it's are a good it's a good inside. lesson you know yeah. it's, it's weird with like political courage or if that's what you want to call it courage just generally but courage of one's convictions or um, like you said the courage to stand up for one's deepest beliefs it can be hard like to have clarity and to then be willing to speak and to take a stand i think there's a tendency on my part sometimes to be like am i right i i i wobble you know what i'm saying and and i think watching that um makes me want to do that, do less of that. Do you know what I'm saying? Watching those old clips of Muhammad Ali, reading those quotes, seeing the fact that he was willing to stand makes me want to do the same. Yeah. And, and then it, hopefully you're right. <laughs> yeah, hopefully you're right, right? You know, you could, you could take, you have the courage of your convictions like the governor of Alabama. Yeah, <laughs> right. Like, oh, ended up on the wrong side. Yeah. Um, so yeah, you hope you're right. You hope that your moral and political consciousness is right. Your ethical sense is good. Um, and it's rare. You know, it's rare in athletics, obviously. He still stands out today. Yeah. It's relatively rare in literature, you know, that we have writers who speak truth to power. Uh, we, I, I wonder what your opinion is about this. I just had this conversation the other day. But, you know, we look at other countries like China, for example, and, and whenever a writer stands up as a dissident, we say, of course, that's what writers should do. Yeah. And then I think in the United States, what does it mean to be a dissident? What, what is it that we're supposed to stand up against? Are we, do we have political writers? Do we have a political literature? Every once in a while, there's like, you know, a group letter sign, like the undersigned, and it's like 500 writers who put their name on a thing, which, just, is, which isn't nothing, but it's not, it seems uh, less involved. There's just, less risk involved. I just did that for the – there was a letter about Donald Trump. Did yeah. you see this one, right? And so I did that um, knowing exactly what you're saying, right? Um, but you know, I think Alexander Heyman wrote a response saying, well, I didn't sign this because this is exactly what you're saying. Not much of a response. And where's, where's, where's American literature as a whole in terms of its political stance? So that's something that's always on my mind because I, I, I do think that we need a political literature. I do think we need writers to be political in their everyday lives but also just in writing books, what they do best. And I wonder, do we do that? Heyman doesn't think so. The guy who runs the Nobel Prizes doesn't think so, as he slammed American literature a few years ago. And But then the nationalist, I mean, sort of like prickles and saying, well, is Heyman right? Is the Nobel Prize right? Depends who we're looking at in terms of American literature. Um, if we look at the literature of like people of color in the United States, there's been a lot of political commitment. But the tendency is not to see that as American literature as a whole. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's... Um... When it comes to, like, I mean, you talk about being political in literature and writing books. Um, there are those. I don't know if they get maybe the airtime or the uh, the readership that they deserve all the time. But in our everyday lives as writers, it almost seems to me to be effective politically. Like, this is where I stand on it right now. And I, my views are always changing. But it's like, I can be of the mind that being political on social media is annoying but right now I'm like, fuck it. I, mm -hmm. I'm, I, I feel like that's where people are. And I think that to say that Donald Trump is mentally unwell and should be nowhere near the Oval Office is a very obvious thought. Mm -hmm. And if I drop it into my Twitter feed or I retweet somebody, it's probably just an echo. But uh, the analogy I use is that it's like they're, like they're like drops of water in a river. They do add up. And I think it's important to chirp. Mm -hmm. I'd rather chirp than say nothing. Right. You know, I mean, I think obviously the dream of so many of us is one day we'll become Roxanne Gay and have a million Twitter followers or whatever. And <laughs> right. in that case, you know, your opinions do matter in that sense. And in the meantime, we as our with our small Twitter followings or whatever social media followings must do our best and hope that one day lightning will strike and that we will have that platform that we've already been developing, you know, and like with the Pulitzer, for example, um, now people care about what I say. What I say has not changed, but now they care. 
And so I feel as if I'm not saying things that I haven't thought of before. I'm saying things that I've always thought of before, but now the difference is all of a sudden I have this platform and I, I better well use it. Well, yeah. And it's like, I feel like you have a unique viewpoint, you know, like your refugee experience, um, different from the immigrant experience. But I think that, like you said, the two can get conflated. Uh, you have an opportunity like with the, forgive me for forgetting the acronym at the United Nations. What is it? The UN UNHCR. Yeah. yeah I mean, Commission on Refugees. like those kinds of invites, like you have an opportunity as a writer to communicate certain things that you wouldn't have before. Mm -hmm. That's pretty awesome. Yeah. And I hope I get to sit next to Angelina Jolie. That'd be <laughs> super awesome. <laughs> so, uh, where did you guys land when you first came here? Did you come to Los Angeles or Southern California? Well, you know, what happened was that um, there were four refugee camps set up in this country to process um, the 150,000 or so Vietnamese refugees in 1975. Um, there was a camp uh, at Camp Pendleton in San Diego, mm. but we ended up in uh, Fort Indian Town Gap in Harrisburg uh, or near Harrisburg. And that's where we were. In Harrisburg, California? Pennsylvania, I'm sorry. Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania, okay. yeah. Uh, which was not the first choice of any Vietnamese refugee, you know, <laughs> uh, which was proven by the fact that in the years afterwards, so many people who were scattered throughout the country, like in Florida and Arkansas and so on, a lot of them migrated to California or to Texas, someplace warm, yeah. basically. Um, but yeah, we ended up there. And, um, you know, my experience was that, uh, you know, in order to leave the camp, you had to have a sponsor. Um, but no sponsor would take my entire family of four. So one sponsor took my parents, one sponsor took my older brother, and one sponsor took me at four years old, and I was separated from my family, God. my parents. That was hard, you know, oh and I think it's left a, a deep imprint on me. Well, I would, I would say so. My daughter's five, and she, like, you know, has separation anxiety. She's going through a phase. I can only imagine being dislocated from your home country and then being in some strange camp and then being dislocated from your family. Yeah, I think that's that's basically true, you know, and I have a three-year-old son, and and exactly what you're saying. So I think I look back on myself through his eyes, and I think I, I do remember feeling, you know, traumatized. But I think I put it all behind me for decades, because you have to. What are you supposed to do? Dwell on this experience? And in, in the long run, it seems inconsequential. I was separated from my parents for a summer, but when you're four, that's that's forever, basically. <sighs> you know. Um, so now I have to go back and look, think about that, and think, well, maybe it did, you know, maybe it did matter to me psychologically more than I ever really fully realized and as a writer you, you 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 have to take whatever you can you know you have to mine the emotional territory wherever it happens and so i've had to go back and look at that experience and other ones that happened in the years afterwards and think these actually really mattered more than i thought they did at the time do you see manifestations of it like do you know do you have like an unusual like level of attachment to like your you know i don't know like is there are there ways that you can you can see it well i think so i think that the, uh, you know, I, I don't. I never. I've never had a, an analyst, which means it's taken me years to figure things out. And I've done it mostly through writing. But I think I've looked at myself, and I think by the time I was eighteen and going away to college, I was a person who did not know how to say I love you, did not know how to respond when someone said I love you, which happened to me twice in the space of a year at eighteen or seventeen, and I was just flat-footed. I, I was frozen. And, I, and various other emotional issues. And I think I have to think, yeah, that's what happened. You know, I was afraid. I was afraid of connecting to people. I was afraid of being alone, all these kinds of things. And that was very much being a part of uh, the particular nature of my refugee experience. Yeah. So you, okay, so you reunite with your parents after that summer. Your brother too? My, uh, my brother <laughs> has gone on record saying, well, it was, it was too much for, my, for our mom to be separated from the four-year-old kid for more than a couple months. But for the 10-year-old brother, he stayed away for two years. <laughs> you know, so he was living with another family for two years. Oh, wow. Yeah. And where did you guys go? 
What do you mean? Where did we go? Like after you guys got back together. Oh, we... right. Um, well, my parents, you know, they, we bought a little house in Harrisburg. Um, and so that's where we, re, re, we regathered. With what? Like you have some money from Vietnam or did they get, you have like assistance? Yeah. Well, uh, basically my parents, you know, they were peasants. Their origins were as peasants, literally, literally with nothing. And then they built up through sheer acumen and entrepreneurial skill, because they had very little education, through sheer talent, they turned themselves into successful merchants in Vietnam. And they were lucky that, you know, my, my dad went to Saigon to buy a house. And we had money in Saigon, so he had some of that. Uh-huh. When we, and then my mom had some, too, when we fled. So that's what we used as capital. Okay. Okay. And so then you built a little house in? Uh, Harrisburg. We bought a little house. Moved to another little house. I had a good time in Harrisburg for the three years or so that we lived there, and then I went back a few years, some seven or eight years ago, to look at Harrisburg, those same homes again. The first house was a little, little tiny suburban thing. The second house was in a ghetto. <laughs> but I had fond memories of that house, too. Yeah. Uh, well, things change. Thing, well, things could have changed, but I, I don't think we were, it was that great of an area even when we were living there now that I look back and think about certain clues. Um, but I'm so glad that my parents got, it out of, got us out of Harrisburg because that town has gone nowhere. <laughs> yeah. And in fact, I think like actually a few months after we left, Three Mile Island happened, the reactor meltdown, and I realized it was only like 17 miles from Harrisburg. Good timing. I was going to say, good yeah. timing. So from there you came to? San Jose, California, All right. which is I think even today the home of the largest Vietnamese population outside of um, Vietnam. And uh, my parents opened the second Vietnamese grocery store in San Jose. And, you know, had the typical refugee immigrant shopkeeper experience, which is to say an extremely difficult experience, which I was an eyewitness to. And um, I left San Jose in 1988 to go to college, and I I, I could not wait to go. Yeah, I mean, like, what uh, – was that what they were doing in Vietnam? Were they shopkeepers there? Like, what kind of merchants were they? Food merchants or – They were um, initially – Tailors. That was my dad's special skill. Um, and then they graduated to uh, running an auto parts shop and then to running a jewelry business. Okay. And then came to the States and suddenly were shopkeepers. Well, you know, that was the business that was available to them. Right. And, and they saw that they could make money that way. And, and it's a brutal way to make a living. It was literally 12 to 14 hours a day from the moment they woke up to the moment they went to sleep. It's a, yeah, the grocery business is difficult. Mm-hmm. The restaurant business is difficult, too. Mm-hmm. You gotta, you always got to kind of be there. Yeah. You're constantly stocking and restocking, yeah. and it's a lot of work. I, I, I haven't thought about that, but I think at least if, if your parents own a restaurant, hopefully you get good food. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> My parents were working all the time. They came home. They had to cook, right? And it was like the most awful food. But at least there was food. But, you know, growing up, I was like, oh, my God, this, this is not good. <laughs> and, and what was your – what was your – was it – I mean, it was a difficult life for them. Was your childhood difficult? Well, I mean, it was emotionally isolated. You know, my brother was seven years older, so he was in college by the time I was 11. I thought that – you know, when he left, I, I had I, – I don't cry very often. That was one of the few times I cried. Um, I think he still feels guilty about that. And then – it was an emotionally isolating experience. It was an experience in which violence was present. My parents were shot on Christmas Eve, you know, in an armed robbery at their store. We had an armed invasion they in were our both, house. They were both shot? Uh, I think it was only, like, flesh wounds, but still, they got shot. Jesus. You know, people broke into our house, put a, pointed a gun in our faces. You um, were there? Yeah, I was there. What happened? They, why did they break into your house? Well, Just... the whole idea of the home invasion um, was very common in San Jose in the 1980s because people knew that these Vietnamese people kept money and gold in their houses. And so this guy, um, the, the irony was that my parents said, don't ever let a Vietnamese person into the house because these were the people doing the home invasions. So the irony was this white guy came knocking on our door. One of my parents let their guard down. I think it was my mom or dad let the person in. Guy had a gun and pointed it at all of us. And thank God for my mom because she was the one who saved us. You know, she ran, pushed past him and ran screaming out into the street. 
just that split second decision, you know, uh, prevented that 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 robbery from going to its logical conclusion. So wait, she runs out into the street and then he takes off. He turns to go after her, and my dad, other the other survival instinct kicks kicks in. He slams the door shut on that guy and locks the door. So my dad, my mom is out there on the street with that guy. But we lived right next to the freeway, which meant there was always traffic on our street. And so when she ran out of the street, everybody saw her. And so that guy, the guy, the gunman took off. Jesus. Yeah. And you're, and then there was just a robbery at the store on Christmas Eve. On Christmas Eve. Yeah, I was, I was watching Scooby Doo Christmas, so I was roughly around ten years old, and my brother took the call. Or maybe I was younger, and you know, I had no idea how to process that information. I wanted to watch my my cartoons. Mom and Dad just got shot. Yeah, I was it's like Christmas Eve. Yeah, uh, I don't know what to feel about that. You know, I felt guilty for that about that. Your brother was for, babysitting you. Yeah. What did he do? Did he could he drive? Did you like drive over? Or? No, no. I mean, he yelled at me for not crying, and I felt bad about that. But again, at that age, I don't know how you're supposed to process that information. Yeah. So these were all signs of what life was like in mm-hmm. San Jose in the 1980s for me. And you wanted out. Like the high school was a, kind of the same thing. Did you have a good time? Or well, ironically, you know, my my brother, okay, my brother, you know, we had no, we, had, we were saving money. My brother got sent to the local high public high school, which is not a great high school. Seven years after getting to the United States, he graduates valedictorian from this public high school, goes to Harvard. Damn. My parents saved their money. By the time I go to high school, he says, "Well, you know, they sent me to the the most expensive elite all boys high school in San Jose." You know, and it was basically also a primarily white high school, so I got a great education. Um, uh, I read like Joyce Faulkner. Oh, I thought Marks you were going to say. I thought you were going to say I got a great education in white people. <laughs> well, yes, basically, you know, because the, all the there were a handful of us Asian American kids. We didn't call ourselves that. We had no language for that. So we gathered in a corner and we called ourselves the Asian Invasion and the Yellow <laughs> Peril. You know, so on the one hand, I got a great education. I learned how to write. I, I learned. I, I, mean, I read modernist literature at you know seventeen. I was reading. I read Ulysses. I read The Sound and the Fury. Um, but I did not get – but I was also surrounded by white people. And so going to Berkeley in college was really transformative because that, I, I was an ethnic studies major in addition to being an English major. And that – the combination of the two uh, was really transformative. Made me this, gave me the sense that I could write or I should write. But Is that, that, that's when it happened? Yeah. At Berkeley? Yeah. Okay. Because I, in high school, I was memorizing you know, the romantics – I thought, oh, I'm going to memorize Shakespeare and Shelley, uh, Shakespeare, Byron, Shelley, so I can seduce girls. And so when Dead Poets Society came out in 1988, I was like, those guys, they're going to quote, you know, the the Shakespeare and Byron when they memorize their poetry, and they did. I was that guy, except I wasn't white. (laughs) (laughs) But I knew in college I could not do this as a living. You know, um, I had to have a purpose. And I had to, I had to like do justice to everything my parents had been through. I couldn't go home to shopkeeper, shopkeeper parents and say, I'm going to write a thesis on the romantics, you know, and discovering African-American literature, Chicano literature, Asian-American literature, and all the histories affiliated with that gave me the sense words can matter in a, in a different way. Words can connect to the world. And now I have a mission, both as a budding critic and as a budding writer. Um, and, and that was really a salvation for me. Well, I think, and I think it also, you know, the, the work can be difficult as, as like I've talked about on this show countless times with people, like getting in the chair, doing the work, struggling with it, getting the rejections, all that comes with it. Having a sense of mission probably helps with that. Because I don't, I don't know if a lot of writers do. I think a lot of writers love to do it or have some impulse to do it, but I don't know how many writers have a true sense of mission and like a clear sense of why they're doing it. I think I learned from my parents watching them do what they did. Um, they walked the walk. You know, They said, work your ass off, and they did. 
And so I learned from that. So I don't, I don't want to do what they do, but I've discovered that I can't take a vacation. So if for me, I mean, basically writing for me is sitting in a room like this. <laughs> we live in California, right? There's always good stuff happening outside. But for 20 years, all I did was sit in a room and write and deal with the rejection, like you said. And, and, and the work ethic that my parents instilled was really crucial for that. As for the sense of mission, I think that, you know, partially it came up from being a Catholic. Like, I'm an atheist, but my parents are incredibly devout Catholics, you know, made me take a Catholic education. And that sense of Catholic uh, sacrifice and devotion and mission has stayed with me even if I don't believe in God himself. I have a little bit of that too. Yeah, right. I think a lot of us Catholics do. Uh, yeah. Uh, but then also, yeah, having that political education gave me a renewed sense of mission and um, it stuck with me. And, and I think that, I've, you know, when you were talking about the Twitter stuff, it's important to to know about writers who have a sense of mission and, and readers who have a sense of mission because they remind us of what that mission is. Hmm. And sometimes it's hard to follow through when you feel alone and isolated and all of that because it wasn't as if I went to school and took writing workshops and people were teaching mission. They were, they were, they were teaching you know, how, to, how, to, how to write a character or develop a scene, but there was never any discussion about how to write about history or how to write about, how to write about politics. Yeah. I had to educate myself on how to do those kinds of things. So how, yeah, like, let's stop there because I was thinking about this uh, you know, just the other day. Um, and maybe in the context of this show, like wanting to have political writers on the show more often, especially since it's an election year, but struggling with how difficult it is to communicate about politics. I find it really onerous trying to talk about politics. And I'm, I feel like I'm relatively politically aware, but the, and, and when I watch it on television or I listen to it on podcasts, it's like a lot of times the conversation seems circular or grading, <laughs> you know, it's a hard thing to talk about, uh, incisively and well and i the same goes with writing about it like do you have any lessons well i think you know so many writers i know are at least democrats liberals leftists and so on and of course on their nonfiction platforms media platforms they will talk about politics right but it's really hard to translate that as you say into literature without being didactic or boring um and that is a huge problem. Uh, so, yeah, I spent 20 years trying to figure this out and realizing that the short story was a really bad form for doing that for me. I really needed the capaciousness of a novel to do it. And the challenge then was to try to figure out, you know, I'm going to write a novel about the Vietnam War, about all this kind of history. Um, but I also want it to be a very political novel. How do I do that? And I had to come up with a formal device that would allow me to aesthetically justify didacticism. Yeah. Okay. So if you read The Sympathizer, there's many moments in the in the novel where our narrator will say very didactic things, you know, criti- being critical of all kinds of different peoples and, and things like that. Now, in many cases, that would just be boring. You don't want to sit next to this guy who's doing that, right? So, and especially in a book, a novel, it well, just seems I, like a thinly veiled excuse for the for the novelist. I was going to say, it feels like you can see the puppet strings. Right. So how do you do that? And I've, and I've read books like that, right? Um, so how do I do this? Well, I had to come up with a narrator who, number one, would plausibly be able to have these ideas. So I, I created a biography for him that allowed that to happen. You wrote it? Like a mini biography kind of? Or well, you, I mean, yeah, and I thought out. through it in my mind. You okay. Know? Okay, so he'd be an educated guy. He would be torn between two worlds so that he would constantly be forced to reflect and um, he would have been educated in Vietnam and the United States and by a French priest father. So he had all these reasons. And he, 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 he also would have had a Marxist education through his radicalization process. So he had all these ideas. But then why would he have that reason to say it? So that, that was the other aesthetic decision. So then I, the, the premise of the novel is that he's caught up in this interrogation. The whole thing is a confession. 
And so as a confession, the novel is a, is a confession, which means the novel is not a realist novel. You know, it's not a novel that's going to be bound by the conventions of, you know, certain kinds of staging or dialogue or anything like that. It could, it's, it's essentially a monologue. And I was going to say memoir, but I mean, it's like a monologue memoir. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, I mean, the, the idea of the confession is, is, is real, that people really were forced to write these confessions in re-education camps in China and Vietnam. So I wasn't making it up. And what I was going to do was I was going to take a pre-existing form and rework it. But the form itself demanded didacticism because the form of the confession is that your interrogator, the communist interrogator, is saying, confess to me your sins and your crimes. You know, we don't want a novel from you. We want a straight confession. So it has to be, it has to be confessional. And the, the thing that my narrator does is that he turns the confession around. He's not just confessing what he's done, but he's also going to use it as an opportunity to, to say things very explicitly that are pointed critiques of, of his own interrogator and the communism that he represents in addition to the American culture and the South Vietnamese government that the interrogator also wants him to criticize. And that was the first thing that you, like that was uh, all of that work, all of that thought work, um, conceiving of all of this came before you sat down to write, or did you try to write struggle and then finally get it? Well, I knew, I knew who he was. I knew the narrators. I came up with that much and I knew that it was going to be a monologue and I knew that it was going to be a confession. I was thinking, obviously, of things like a novel like Invisible Man, which does many of the same things. But I didn't know who he was confessing to, and I didn't know who he was confessing to until about two-thirds of the way through the book. And at that point, I realized, that's it. That's good. I all, and you know, to go back and rewrite it to accommodate that was actually very minor work. But I re the reason why having the communist interrogator be the person he's, that he's confessing to be such an ideal relationship was that it allowed me to um, aesthetically construct the novel as a conversation between two Vietnamese people, two radically different Vietnamese people, but Vietnamese people nonetheless. And what that meant was that um, I was freed from worrying about an American readership or any non-Vietnamese readership to a certain extent. I did not, because it was two Vietnamese people talking to each other, I didn't have to translate certain things. Like a lot of minority literature in the United States is implicitly written for an American audience, or which is to read a white audience. Yeah. So you see a lot of implicit and explicit translation happening. Like the, the writer will say something about her, his culture, or use a word from her, his mother tongue, and then translate it automatically into English or translate it for people who don't know these kinds of things. That is automatically a sign of disempowerment and who the writer is writing for. And I didn't want to do that. So this this is another aesthetic decision that had political consequences because to you know write from one Vietnamese person to another Vietnamese person is a calculated political and aesthetic choice. And I was always thinking of you know Toni Morrison. She's gone on record saying many times, I write black novels, black fiction for black people, not for white people. Now white people can listen in, they can read, but they're not the primary audience. And I wanted, and I thought she's right, and I need to figure out a way to make this happen. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, we, it goes back to what we were talking about earlier and uh, extends to now with respect to, um, you know, the as a white person, you can sort of take for granted how easy it is to see yourself reflected in um, movies, novels, etc. And I think it can be hard in the presence of that privilege to realize what it would feel like to not have that. Like to not be able to turn to the movies and not be able to turn to uh, popular fiction or, you know, uh, mainstream fiction and to see yourself reflected. Yeah, and I think that's why for so many people who don't see themselves reflected or represented 
in mass culture in the United States, whether it's literary or or, or uh, film or, or the level of politics, not to be represented really hurts. And so when um, Americans of a different background, white Americans, say, just get over it, you know, it doesn't really matter, it's just a story, they're speaking from the position you're speaking of, which is they can rest assured in their privilege that there's literally thousands of stories about people like them. More than thousands. More than thousands, <laughs> you know, and... And so for them to dismiss a story as not mattering, it's because if someone were to actually make that story about them and be insulting, um, they can just sort of like take comfort in knowing that there's, again, millions of stories about them. Now, ironically, even, even when, that, even when that, that is the case, when you write a story that's critical of, of white people and point that out, sometimes people do get insulted anyway, you know, um, which is a thing that's happened sometimes in the case of the sympathizer that, you know, there, there are some Americans um, who have been offended by this book. Not as many as I thought would be, but some. So anyway, and the you've whole, heard from them? Oh, yeah. I mean, um, you know, I read my Amazon.com and Goodreads reviews religiously. I've read every single one. And then there is a generation of Americans who still write letters. I get those. Okay. And the ratio of angry letters is much higher. Take from that what you may. The ones that like just be, maybe could be because of uh, demographics or age or... I think so. Yeah. And typically American military veterans will write me letters rather than communicate via email or, or something like that. And um, the, the, the angry ones will, you know. And so I have all that in my files. And you read them. Do you respond? You know, I responded once to one to one person. I wrote, had written this New York Times editorial on the 40th anniversary of the end of the war, talking about the necessity of you know remembering Vietnamese refugees, among other things. This guy wrote me, and he was angry. He was really angry. And basically, the 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 the, the gist of all these letters from American veterans who are critical of me is, you don't appreciate our sacrifice. Um, which is not true. I do appreciate that sacrifice, but I feel like I'm living in a culture in which that sacrifice is actually constantly validated now. It wasn't in the 70s, right? But it is now. Right. Um, and in and, and contrast, the experiences of of Vietnamese people, but also of, of all these people for in the countries where Vietnam, the United States has fought wars, that's not validated. So I have to compensate for that. So this person writes me the letter, and then I, I respond. I, I respond not trying to argue with him. I say, look, I'm sorry that you're angry. You know, um, but maybe you should try to address the roots of the anger, you know, because being angry only affects you. It doesn't affect me. And he got he got angry you're writing back to me. Yeah. So I was like, OK, I'm not going to continue this. It's conversation. hard. I mean, uh, you know, it's hard to uh, I always say don't feed the trolls on Twitter, you know, because somebody can say something really outrageous or angry and there is the impulse to respond. But then it, I always find myself thinking like, OK, this is just going to spiral. I'm going to lose time. Mm -hmm. This is going to be like an hour of mm -hmm. my life, like trying to, you know, go back and forth. It doesn't seem worth it to me. Yeah. So I have a Facebook page that, you know, I'm very active on, an author page. And all that happens, you know, I write stuff that's very political. People respond positively or negatively. And I oftentimes don't respond to the comments for the exact reason you're saying. But instead, I'll just write another Facebook post to address the general tenor. Because yeah. I mean, the, the gist of that, the, from this critique, the gist that, you know, American veterans are... Our, our need to have their sacrifice appreciated, it's a valid point. But let me address it you know, to a larger audience and, and try to affect the larger audience versus every individual person. Yeah, that gets tedious. Yeah. So um, you were born what year? Do you mind, mind, mind me asking? You know, it's on the copyright pages, so what can I say? It's 1971. <laughs> okay, so 71, so you're in your 40s. This is your debut novel? Yes. Not a bad debut. <laughs> yeah, not shabby. Not shabby. Uh, but it took you uh, it took you a while. It's not like you cranked this out when you were. I mean, you were working for a long time. You spoke earlier of sitting in a room for twenty years and doing rejection. Like, 
how was the, how long did it take you? How many false starts were there? Do you have like multiple novels in a drawer that never made it out? Okay, so the story about this novel is that I wrote it in two years. Okay, okay. it was actually really relatively easy to write. Not totally easy, but relatively easy. But the context is that I had spent more than a decade, you know, um, writing a short story collection. That was an awfully miserable, horrible experience. Uh, and but it was lots of rejection. You know, ninety nine percent you know, bad, bad stuff. And 1% feeling good about myself. The outcome of that though, is that when my agent said, Hey, it's time for you to write a novel, because that's the only way we're going to sell this short story collection too. And I said, okay, I always wanted to write a novel. The great thing was when I sat down to write the novel after a couple months of hesitations and trying to figure out the beginning, once I got into it, it was actually an incredibly great process, but it was only possible. I think because of all the suffering that had gone on before somehow, Beating my head against the wall in writing those short stories led to the breakthrough when I found the novel. When I found the, the form of the novel, like I said, was the right form for me. I needed all that space. But if I tried to write that novel when I was younger, I probably would have suffered through 10 or 15 years as well. Oh, so, I was going to say, because like, was, was it just a situation where the novels may be your more natural form? And when you were trying to write the story collection, you were you know inside of a, a structure that wasn't quite suited to you? Or do you think that that was just your that just happened to be your apprenticeship i think it was a natural form and the short stories were the apprenticeship but if i tried to write the novel a novel as an apprenticeship it would probably been just as difficult as writing the short stories yeah you learn a lot Mm -hmm. i never want to write another one though (laughs) short story right you're from here on out it's novels yeah that's it yeah i hear the short stories you're like oh it's just you know it's a really tough form it is. I mean, and I, I respect poets. I respect short story writers. There, there is something inherent about the forms that um, are very, very, very difficult. And I, I think they probably think the same way about the novel. Um, so I'm lucky that, I, that the novel works for me. Um, but so I, when I, I, I tried writing poetry in college, I was sucked, but I recognized that early on, didn't sacrifice my life for that. Did not recognize that about short stories. Um, and there is something about the short story that I understand sort of in a technical way. Like I can read a short story and, and admire how it worked out, but I can't figure it out myself. I mean, I can figure it out. Like I can write short stories that pass them, that pass a certain kind of judgment that have been published in reasonably respectable places, but I don't get excited about it. You know, I don't feel like I can, I don't think I can possess that short story and blow it up in a transformative way like I can with the novel as a genre. There's just something about it that, I don't truly understand. Hmm. And and with the success that the sympathizer is having and with the the things that you were able to express in it, which, you know, like you said, were, were sort of brewing inside you for a lifetime, really. I mean, it's it's something that you were building towards. Uh, has, has it changed your sense of mission at all as an artist and as a writer? I mean, I know that you have these things that once you once the light sort of went on in college and you, you all of a sudden clarified for yourself what you were doing and why, then you, you've done it. It's won the Pulitzer Prize. Um, now, now what? Well, you know, I think, number one, there's a fear that uh, I don't have to do a darn thing again. You know, <laughs> I can just eat off this prize for the rest of my life is what people are telling me. But I don't want to do that. And then the other thing is, um, not, so then the question is what next, right? But then, so then what next? I mean, I don't want to write another Vietnam War novel. Obviously, the fear of, of, of people who are of a, of a minority background or even American veteran writers is you'll be classified in a certain way. So you'll be the Vietnamese American writer, or there's a whole genre of Vietnam veteran writers too. Right. 
And so that's the temptation. And But the difficulty is that at the same time, I think it's still actually a really crucial history to address the Vietnam War. So my solution to it, hypothetically, uh, theoretically, is that I, my understanding of the Vietnam War is that it needs to be situated in a much larger capacious history of America. Uh, and and the fact that for me, the Vietnam War is one episode in a much longer history of warfare that, that begins 1898, for example, when the U.S. took the Philippines, Hawaii, Guam, Puerto Rico, continues today in Iraq, Afghanistan, etc. That's my understanding of war. And that's a mission. That's that's a lifetime project to try to figure out how to deal with that. So I think that you know the sequel to The Sympathizer is not about the Vietnam War as Americans understand it, but is about Vietnam and the war in a much more global sense as I understand it. So it takes place in Paris because I want to deal with the French aspect of the Vietnam War and the colonization and so on. And I want to be able to you know, f- encourage my readers to think more capaciously about what this war has meant to many different countries in a much wider time frame than how Americans have generically uh, or typically understood it. Do you speak French? Badly. Badly. But better than many Americans. I was going to say, yeah. A lot. And then um, have you spent time over there? Like, are you going to go over there to research? And Well, my wife and I have spent about a year over there altogether. Um, and because she actually does French and Vietnamese as her specialization as an academic. And, you know, our fantasy is to retire to Paris. You know, um, we love Paris and all, and all of that. So I, feel, I think I've done enough research, although I would certainly love to go back as an excuse to sure. do more. Why not? Um, but, you know, I think I've seen enough of Paris and France to understand you know, their state of racial relations, their, their remembering and forgetting of their own colonial history and their own wars. Um, and I think that's really fascinating to be able to try to see how my narrator, who lives at the end of The Sympathizer, is going to cope when he goes there to try to find his father's family, for example, to try to get recognition from this horrible father figure and confront other colonial histories in Paris, like what happened to the Algerians. For so example. is this a series of novels? I mean, if you're going to go, if, if this is a lifelong project and you've got all these different countries and cultures that were touched by the war in Vietnam and all these different uh, countries and governments who are engaged in imperial behavior uh, around the globe, I mean, can you see this stretching out into a series of novels, five, six books long? Or, Well, you know, one of the things that I love is um, thriller, thriller literature and spy literature. There's one, that's, one, that's why I wrote this novel as a genre novel. And in the world of genre fiction, you do that. You write trilogies and tetralogies and series and all of that, and it's totally common. Apparently not so common in literary fiction. So sometimes when I mention a sequel, people are like, no, don't do that. You're just going to, again, feed off your prize and feed off the novel. But I don't see it that way. I, I do see it as part of the larger mission, but I also see it as part of genre. And I, I don't have a problem with genre. Mm. Um, so I don't think of it as five or six novels, though. I, I have a hard time thinking of it past three because I think I know what's going to happen. But I do want to... Trilogies are good. Once you get into the fourth, it gets yeah. tough. <laughs> yeah. Unless you're J.K. Rowling. Yeah. Why not? Yeah, If, right. if you have seven novels, then you wind up. I don't have that. But I think um, after I'm done with The Sympathizer, I mean, the character, um, there are other novels that I've, I'm thinking of that allow me to take on this larger history, this larger mission from different angles. And what about war? Like, not to put too big of a question on you, but um, you mentioned all these, uh, you know, foreign adventures that the United States has engaged in and continues to engage in. Is there ever a good one? I mean, you know what I'm saying? Like, it just seems like in my lifetime anyway, they've always been bad mistakes. And yet I also can find myself nodding when I hear... Like, for instance, you know, I thought uh, Obama's Nobel Peace Prize acceptance speech 
had some hard truths in it that I, I couldn't entirely refute about the necessity sometimes of uh, military intervention or f the use of force. I thought that was kind of an honest response. You know, you can't be a pacifist when you are entrusted with power, when you're, a, you know, an exec you have executive power and you're in charge of a military and uh, a country. I've been thinking about false choices over the last few days. I think there are a lot of false false choices that are offered to people as if A and B are the only options you have. And I think the whole issue of is there a good war or not is a part of this idea of the false choice. Because oftentimes then people will say, as as your the example that you're giving, well, if we don't fight wars, we're going to have this horrible thing happen. So we have to fight wars sometimes. And that is a false choice because it's going to lead us, it already has led us, and not just us Americans, but all all countries into a path where we think warfare has to be a part of, of the solution. We have to build a military industry. Um, and that leads, in the case of the United States, does, it does not lead to the logical conclusion that we have to have 800 military bases all over the world, that we have to spend trillions on our, 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 our quote-unquote defense and build, gear ourselves into a military-industrial complex. Let's think about another choice. Instead of thinking we have to pre be prepared for war, or its consequences, why can't we think, well, we also have to prepare for a genuine peace? I was going to say, what about a Department of Peace? Yeah. I know people like Dennis Kucinich used to say this, and people would laugh him out of the room. And I was always like, yeah. I mean, think about all the, like you say, trillions of dollars we've spent on uh, weapons and militarization, military technology, military strategy, all of it. What if we put even a fraction of that into how do we create and sustain peace? How do we... Uh, resolve conflict peacefully, diplomatically, in uh, in a way that's lasting. Like, that's not silly, right? Right. I don't think that's unimaginable. But as you're saying, there are people who laugh and say, oh, it's completely unrealistic. But it's not. I mean, it's a failure of of the collective imagination. We're all partially responsible for it, which is why, you know, you can hold President Obama up to a certain standard and say he should do more than he does, which I think is true. But for each of us, you know, that drop of water that you're talking about, each of us also has to, you know, say it out loud. Mm. Because if we don't say it out loud in whatever form, we're never actually going to get to the point where we have the mass movement that could actually make that possible. That where we, where we could argue we haven't actually done the hard work to build peace in the same way that we've done the work to build a war machine. Yeah. Because it's easier to build a war machine. It's easier to destroy. You look at your own children. It's easier to have them destroy things than to teach them how to create things. <laughs> right. They are destroyers. Right. Well, but it's like, and I forget, I'm, I'm going to totally uh, botch this because I'm paraphrasing and, and also drawing on like a, a faulty memory. But I seem to remember like Franklin Roosevelt talking to a constituent or talking to someone uh, like a politician who was lobbying him to... I don't know what it was, you know, enact some law, some sort of so social justice. And his response was, make me. Make me. Right. But that's right. That's our obligation. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Do, like, he can't do it alone. Yeah. Like, politicians can't just unilaterally, right. and our system can't just unilaterally do it. You have to create a political environment that would allow. And I think maybe an example of this was, uh, at least to a certain degree, was gay civil rights during Obama's term, mm -hmm. where, um, you know, the polls... You know, it can seem crass to reduce it to that. But, yeah, the, eventually the polls creep up and eventually the politicians act, yeah. you know, and that's that's what has to happen. Public opinion sort of has to beat them to it. Well, you know, the gay rights, queer rights, all that kind of stuff, 
part of what you, you can call the new social movements right after the 1960s. And the one advantage that they have is that they can mobilize people around um, identities and around uh, rights, right? Uh, but, but it's not always about m like money, like investment. When we think about the military-industrial complex, that's like a gigantic boulder. It's so many, it's so heavy. So many people have invested in it mm. that it's a lot harder, I think, to to move that boulder than it is even to fight for 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 you know HIV treatment or 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 gay marriage. Those are hard enough, right? But comparatively, to then try to think of radically transforming American society around its entire economic base—that's what's so challenging. Well, and yeah, and it's like you know, it's really hard to convince somebody. That what they're like, what they do for a living, what earns them their bread, is morally bankrupt. People can convince themselves when that's how they make their money, and yeah. good people can convince themselves. Yeah. You know, other you know, well-intentioned people. It's a yeah. tough, it's a tough thing to turn people around on. You know, there actually is a United States Institute of Peace in D.C. I think it's government-funded. So they should know, ask you to speak. Uh, they did. Oh, they did. They did. Good. Um, <laughs> so uh, it was really interesting because. Um, out of the entire day's worth of speakers, I, I believe I was the only one who even very politely hinted at the possibility that a U.S.-sponsored peace was not always necessarily a beneficial thing. But everybody else, you know, they were all congressmen, parts of think tanks. They were all part of the Washington establishment or NGOs and so on. They were all basically, yeah, American exceptionalism. That's 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 what peace means. And so even peace can be appropriated by the government. Yeah. Everything can. <laughs> well, listen, uh, it's such a pleasure and an honor to have you here. I'm, I'm really happy for you. What an amazing year you're having. Congratulations. And uh, I wish you luck on, I guess, the trilogy. Can mm -hmm. we call it a trilogy? Well, let's just call it to a sequel right now. Let's, sequel. See, let's see how I deal, do with that. Okay. Hey, but thanks for having me here. For those read listeners who've never seen the inside of Brad's garage, <laughs> it's like something out of Wayne's World. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, that's about it. Well, thank you so much. Thanks a lot. Okay, you guys, that's Viet Thanh Nguyen, Pulitzer Prize winner. Go get his novel. It's called The Sympathizer, available now from Grove Press. You can find him online at vietwin.info. He's also on Twitter. His handle over there is at Viet underscore T underscore Win. Additionally, he's on the Facebook. Thank you to Kill Rockstars for all the music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. Don't forget about that app. The app is free. Go get that app. Sign up for premium. Support the show. Uh, if you would like to email me, the address is letters at otherppl.com. Letters at otherppl.com. Uh, you can uh, tell me a story. You can complain. You can shower me with praise. Whatever you like. Letters at otherppl.com. I have some great shows coming up. Did I mention that I booked a uh, very hard-to-get major American author? Very nervous about it. Got to get going on preparation. Got to be ready. Got to figure out where I'm going to record. <laughs> uh, it's weird now uh, doing this in the garage. The house is empty. People are coming over into an empty house. It's like I'm squatting. I told, I've talked about this before. It makes me feel awkward. Maybe I always should have felt awkward about inviting people into this garage. What am I doing? <laughs> is improper it's a violation of social norms please remember that Edith Wharton was buried in Versailles and that the word plagiarism is derived from the Latin word for kidnapping that's it for now huge thanks to Viet Thanh Nguyen for coming over sitting down 
and uh, so generously talking with me. He's a busy man these days. He made time for the Other People podcast. I appreciate that. Thanks to you guys as well, uh, as always, for making time for the Other People podcast, for making it part of your weekly media diet. (laughs) Hey, you could do worse, right? Thanks for listening. Thanks for spreading uh, the word about the show. Tweeting about it incessantly. Posting it on your Facebook wall. Um, All right. It's very hot. I have a guest coming over momentarily. Like right after I finish this, I have to interview somebody. Big time uh, author too. Welcome to my empty house. Welcome to my filthy garage. I feel like people are going to, like publicists are going to get fired over this. (laughs) Uh, Please accept my apologies. Preemptively. (laughs) 